0: amen good morning how are you it's good to see you get your Bibles out and open to Luke chapter 15 or page 1203 on the pew Bible there in front of you so remember next Sunday morning it'll be dedication Sunday it'll be a big day so there'll be shoe boxes covering the stage up here and uh, we will dedicate those to the Lord and celebrate the opportunity that's before us for the gospel to go around the world. it be an exciting time. It's always a, a big service every year, and we get to do that. So if you have shoeboxes at home, finish them up this week and bring them, and uh, we will celebrate together. All right. I also want to say welcome to those of you joining us online. We pray God ministers through His Word to you as we're together. Okay, let's think about Jesus for a minute, all right, before we jump into His Word. Let's get our our thoughts and our mind sort of focused around where it needs to be. You know, when you start to read the Gospels, so all these things start to become evident, and if, it's, if we're not careful, we can miss them. You know, we could just sort of read along and think, well, you know, that's How Jesus is, but I want you to think with me for a minute about how crazy it is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Him. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Him and he liked them I mean that that's a crazy thing when you think about it because the people who felt least welcome in the temple were the people that felt most welcome with Jesus And the people who felt most at home in the temple were made to feel most alienated around Jesus. Now that's strange, isn't it? Jesus comes, as we've been talking about for these past weeks, to let us know that God is for us, that He doesn't want something from us, but He's for us. That's been the conversation that we've been talking about, how God is for us. And isn't that a wonderful blessing? But God was for the people when He came as Jesus, now, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's for the people who are most against him. Jesus seemed to be against those who seemed to be most for him. Now, now listen. Think this through. It's not that Jesus comes and there's a religious group of people who are worshiping a false god. The religious community that Jesus enters into is worshiping God, the Father. And yet, those were the people that Jesus... Made most uncomfortable. Those were the people that ultimately became his enemies, and the people who were most against God. Now let's think this through, because now we're 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 all against God initially, right? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's all of us. But now think about this. When when we sin. Who do we sin against? Why is it sin? It's only sin because we sin against God. So the sinners, the, the people who are actively doing things against God, is the, are the people that God spent all of his time with, are the people that felt most comfortable around him. So Jesus is for those who seem to be most against God, but he seemed to be against those who seem to be the most for God. Now the church is the body of Christ, right? So if you have your listening guys, then what was true for Jesus personally should be true of our community. In other words, if we're the body of Christ, right, then, then we, we are a representation of who? Christ. So if Christ was for those who were farthest from God and we're the body of Christ, do you see because the reason we, we have to think of this in terms of the body of Christ because none of us individually have any possibility of representing the totality of all that Christ was right the only way we can be Christ-like is together because he's too much he's too big right but together we become the body of Christ so the body of Christ whatever's true about Jesus personally should be true of us as the body of Christ in community would you agree yeah okay so if that's true Okay, you ready? If that's true, then the people who are nothing like us should like us. We're just going to let that sit there for a second. The people who are nothing like us should like us. Because they like Jesus. Now what is the predominant Theme, the predominant narrative of the culture that we live in today. I mean, the absolute most dominant and directive factor of the culture that we live in today, by far, tribalism. Tribalism. Meaning that we, not only as a people, align ourselves with the people who act like us, believe like us, talk like us, think like us, agree with us. Not only do we align ourselves with the people that are like us, but we gladly, routinely, and fervently tell the other people all the things that we disagree about them. Crickets. Isn't that what we do? Now, based on the Bible, tribalism makes us most unlike Jesus. Most. So now with that, settling our thoughts and our heart in the right posture, here we have a passage of Scripture everyone in the room knows. Every one of you knows the passage of Scripture we're about to discuss. Or do you? You've heard it, you've sung it, you've read it, but do we know it? Let's see, let's see. Luke 15, verse 1, let's read together. The Bible says now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. All right, stop there, can't even go any further. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Now, how did they get there? What were they doing there? Why did they? Why were they there? Did Jesus send out a preliminary announcement that he was going to be in the area, and so he he sent out a press release that said, "You know, at four p.m. on this day, I'm going to be in Capernaum. If you want to come and meet with me," so people knew where he was. Or was he, did he say, you know, hey, if you come and meet with me, you know, then uh, we're going to raffle off something so you have a chance to win something. Did he say that the first hundred people that show up to the gathering that I'm going to be having in Capernaum are going to receive some gift? How did all these people get around Jesus? No one was invited to come. They just came on their own. There was no reward for coming except for just being there with Christ. So what happened was, Jesus shows up on the scene, and the people that are least like Him, the people who were furthest from Him, the people who aligned with Him in the least possible way, the most different people on earth from Him are the people who gathered around Him on their own. They couldn't get enough of it. They just swarmed around Him. That's an astonishing thought when you think about it. These are people who aren't even allowed in the temple. They're not even allowed to go to church, and when the one who is the church shows up, they're the ones around him. That ought to shock your senses. Now watch this. Verse 2, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, did you see the word muttered? If you look that word up in the original language, it's the word tweeted. It means posted. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law Posted on Instagram, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, I just want us to think about this for a second. What was it like? Now, now remember, these are people actively engaged in behavior against Jesus personally. See, I know that we all take everything personal, and we all want everybody to know who we agree with and who we don't, and we want everybody to align on our side, and everybody who's not on our side, we're constantly trying to illuminate them. So you need to just keep all that sort of bottled up inside of you for a second as we walk through this. Now there's Jesus, and the very people that are actively sinning against Him personally, who have not, there was no invitation, no reward offered, there's no free meal, He's not giving out Krispy Kreme donuts, they just come around him because they want to be there. What happens when they get together? The criticism, what's tweeted, what's posted is about, well, this man is, is eating with these people. So what's happening is when the people that are actively doing things personally against him, they get together, they're sharing a meal together. Conversation is happening. Barriers are breaking down. Laughter is no doubt present. Truth is being conveyed. Love is being explained and evidenced. Jesus was so attractive. To people far from God. They couldn't help. But be around him. But along come. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now you see whenever we hear the words Pharisees teachers of the law. We immediately associate that with, you know, they're our enemy because they're Jesus' enemy. They're the the bad guys. We automatically feel like we're in opposition to them. But the truth is, we are them. And here's what I mean by that. They were the ones... who were descendants of Abraham. See, their father was Abraham. Just like my father was Abraham. In other words, they were the ones who had been entrusted the covenant blessing. In other words, they were the ones who the Bible says all the way back in the beginning that they were going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. You see, we today are the keepers of the covenant. Every time we say we're the hands and feet of Jesus, or every time we say, you know, we know the gospel, we're going to share the gospel, that's just another expression of we're to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. You understand? That's who we are. We're in the same exact position that they were in. But instead of being desperate, instead of being devoted to the things that God had called them to, they had become filled with apathy and selfishness. And what happened was they actually began to, instead of going to the people that were far from God, they directed their time at, Keeping them away. They said, well now, if he really was a man of God, he would know that that man that he's eating with is a tax collector. See, he would know that that woman and her family are unclean, that he shouldn't be eating with them. He would know that These people had broken the law, had done unrespectable things, committed crimes. And anyone who hangs out with people like that, well, they can't be a man of God. They can't be a representative of God. And so Jesus, interestingly, responds to this scenario, not with a theological debate. He doesn't go into some philosophical conversation about what, their, what was broken in their past or what their felt needs are. that created the scenario in their life where they are such that they are. He doesn't make them feel guilty. He tells them a story. And he says, First four. suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and comes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now what does Jesus do when He encounters people who... are fixated on letting everybody know that they're wrong. What does Jesus do when he encounters people who are devoted to making sure that they are the ones that tell people the things they need to know. You see, I want you to pay close attention to something. In verse 3, the Bible says that he spoke this parable to them. Now, my question is, who is them? Because Jesus is sitting with a group of people. And then another group of people approach. And then he tells the story to them. Now, who is the them in the story? Is he talking to the group of people that were around him at first? Or is he talking to the people who have just walked up? Because everybody can hear what he's talking about. But he's specifically talking to one group of people. And we need to know who that is. What Jesus says is in response to the mutterers. That's who he's talking to. And so he tells a story that does what? Well, it confounds them. It confuses them. It infuriates them, no doubt. But what is the point of the story? The point of the story is to show them the heart of God. And so here's the first thing we have to realize is that Jesus clearly... Listen, the people that he's speaking to feel most alienated from God. But it's not because of God, because here's the thing. Jesus tells them a parable. You see, if Jesus wasn't for them, then he wouldn't have told them a parable. He would have just ignored them. But he didn't do that. He tells them a parable about the heart of God. So he gives them an opportunity to align their heart with the heart of God. The reason they feel alienated from God has nothing to do with God and has everything to do with them. Would you agree? So he doesn't just love the people who are sinners and tax collectors that are around him. He also loves the people who are muttering about him or he wouldn't have told them the the parable in the first place. Now, what does the story teach us? Well, the first thing it teaches us is this. Even though we're all equally loved right now, it is the lost that are God's priority. I mean, this is just crystal clear, although it doesn't seem to be if you listen to the religious muttering of our day. The story is not telling us what we want to know about the heart of God. The story is telling us about what is the heart of God. Now, when you read the story at face value, honestly, you have to say to yourself, well, it doesn't make any sense. Because if you read the story and it makes sense, then something's wrong with you because it's not supposed to make sense. Because it doesn't make sense. Here's what I mean. Put yourself into the story and let's see how this would work. So I've worked all day. It's hot. I'm dirty. I'm tired. I've been all day in the field. I can't finally get home. It's getting late. Dinner's on the table. And suddenly we start counting the sheep. 87, 88, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 99. Where's Toby? Here we go with him again. Where is he? He's not here. All I want to do is go inside, eat dinner, relax, kick my feet up, rest a minute. But no, he's missing. And let's face it, it's 1%. It's just one out of 100. Let's think it through. How do you lose... 99 of your brothers and sisters. Like, how dumb do you have to be, Toby, if you can't follow 99 other sheep across the daggum land that you walk every single day? Like, everyone else makes it there, and somehow you can't seem to stay focused long enough to get to where we're going. We're not going to a new place. We're not going to a foreign place. We're going home. And you get lost. You can't follow 99 brothers and sisters to where we need to go. So let's think about it. I'm tired. I'm hungry. This can't be the first time Toby's done something really stupid. It can't be. Now he's lost. So you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, I mean, I'm a smart shepherd. I don't need his genes in my flock. What I don't need is Toby making little Tobys. So we're going to leave him gone, and it's just going to make everything better. Let's just let natural selection take its course, and let's leave that bonehead out of here. Because if you're too dumb to follow 99 sheep across a field to go home where you live, I don't really got nothing for you. Now I know you're different. I'm just talking about me. That's the whole point of the story. See, when you read the story, it doesn't seem logical, it doesn't seem plausible. See, the reality is is that God has an illogical love for the lost. You see, if you're one of the ninety-nine, this scenario right here is going to cause you great heartburn. This is going to annoy you. It's illogical. Look, look back at your Bible. Look at verse 4. The second sentence, doesn't he leave the 99 in the pen, locked up, safe and sound, under the supervision of all of the uh, field hands? Is that what it says? Don't look at me, look down. What does it say? In the open country? Hold up a second. If you're one of the 99... This is what you're thinking. Same thing I'm thinking. Oh, wait a second. Now, now I'm a sheep, dumbest animal in the entire food chain. Really? Like on the intelligence scale in the creation narrative, it goes rock, Toby, all the other sheep okay? The only thing Toby's smarter than is a rock. The only thing the 99 are smarter than is Toby. You got this? Now, I'm one of the 99 with you. We're standing here. Now, we, our only protection in the world is the shepherd. Without the shepherd, we are, our nickname is luncheon meat. So here we are in the open country and our protection just wandered off looking for that moron. So here's what happens to us. We start getting bitter. At who? At the shepherd? Mm Mm-mm. Toby. We think, okay. Wait until he gets back with Toby. Tonight after everybody goes to sleep, we're going to get Toby up in the middle of the flock, and we're going to work Toby down. We're going to fix this fool like he's, hey, Toby's in danger of my family. Toby is jacking with my livelihood. He's messing with my comfort. He's. I mean, I don't like this. You don't like this. Leave him out there. the gravitational pull of every heart in this room starting with mine is to have the 99 mentality the gravitational pull of every church is to think like the 99 and not like the shepherd. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more in danger you are of just indoctrinating yourself into the 99 mentality. See, Jesus comes along, and he makes it clear that we're we're all equally loved, but Toby's the priority. And see, we don't like that. We don't like that. Jesus is clearly the shepherd in the story. And we have conditioned ourselves to believe that we're the center of his affections, that this is about us. It's about me. So he's not going to leave me in the open country. But in reality, he does. And you know what? In reality, so would I and so would you. I'm about to be married 29 years, a couple weeks. I've learned a lot of things in 29 years come a long way. But there was a time early on when I wasn't as crafty as I am now. There was a time early on when my children were small and Lisa got me to go with her and the kids to the mall Rookie mistake. To the mall. Just me, her, and the kids. To the mall. Can you imagine? See, now I know that if she were to say, Honey, will you go with me and the kids to the mall? Immediately, I'm like, "Ooh, I am feeling bad, honey. Or, I mean, you fake a heart attack. Whatever you got to do in that moment, you got to get out of that. But this was early on. I hadn't figured this out yet. So there I am. In the mall with two little kids. Hold on, it's gonna get worse. In Dillard's. Dear God, you know that's bad. And so there, so I'm in the mall with my wife, two little kids in Dillard's. I got one job. Well, really, I have two jobs. The first job is stop complaining, the second job, the only real job I have. Is to watch this one and this one. That's my only job. Just watch them. So, I don't really know how it happened. I don't really know the circumstances. I just know that I was trying to endure the moment. And all of a sudden I looked down and I had this one. Because this one is sweet and obedient and cute. But I didn't have this one. Who is now this one? But at this time, this one was mischievous and curious and gone. Now, he's gone. Now, when I look down and I say, Kayla, where's your brother? She's like five. She's like, you know. So I do what any rational, smart parent would do in this moment. I got to find him on my own so that I can pretend this never happened. So I start scouring the, the area, and I'm going in between all the racks, and I'm looking, 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 trying to, because I'm like, if I, where is he? And I'm calling his name, calling his name. He's nowhere, 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 nowhere. And so this goes on for a few, as my heart rate's going up and up and up and up and up, and I'm realizing, ah, he's not there. And I'm thinking, please don't let her come out of the dressing room. Please don't let her come out of the dressing room. And then I have to make the fatal decision, which is not call 911. It's tell my wife that I lost her son. And so when I say the words, honey, I can't find Colton, the whole thing turns into a fiasco. Now, everyone knows that there's a missing child. You know, it's like the loudspeaker's going, we have a moron father over here in aisle 17 who has lost his child, so if you would please look for him, you'll see the tall, boneheaded-looking guy who lost his kid, the only thing he had to do. I mean, everybody's going, swirling around, yelling. you know, the store's about to go into lockdown. And suddenly... The missing child appears from the inside of the rack, you know, like, oh, I had a little fort in there that nobody knows about. So, in the moment of having a lost child, what's illustrated is, I love both, all my children equally. But in that moment, there's no conversation that Kayla could get me to have with her. There's no problem in her life that I'm willing to address in that moment. I love her the same as him, but in that moment, my singular priority is only on that which is lost. Right? So the issue that Jesus is showing us is not that one's more important than the other, but it's the scenario, it's the circumstance, it's the condition of the one that makes the one the priority over the 99. It's the condition of the 99 that lessen the priority of them as opposed to the one. You got it? But so we're all God's children, and, we're in, and all of us that are adopted into His family are loved by Him. But contrary to what we'd like to believe this morning, we're not His priority at the moment. The second thing this story teaches us is that serving carries people home. Serving carries people home. See, in verse 5, it says, And when he finds Toby, I'm just, you know, it's not actually in there, Toby. But that was his name. He joyfully put it on his shoulders and goes home. So now, it's a long day. I'm tired I'm hungry. I'm frustrated. I finally get home. Then I find out Toby's messed up again. He's gone. And I got to, so I leave the 99. I go out. I'm, I'm searching all over the place. It's dark. You know, I'm aggravated. I finally get to Toby. Now, I'm just telling you, when I get to Toby, when I find him, I'm tying a rope around his neck, and I'm dragging his butt all the way back to the house. That's how that's going down. Jesus picks Toby up and carries him all the way home. See, Jesus Jesus not only goes looking, he not only doesn't quit until he finds him, But when he finds him, he loves him, and he serves him, and he carries him home. See, Toby got himself in a situation that he couldn't get himself out of. And Jesus recognized his helpless and hopeless situation. And so Jesus didn't, in turn, send help to Toby. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't enlist help, didn't send Toby a message giving him the solution. Jesus became help for Toby. The Bible says it this way. In this the love of God was manifest or made known to us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You see, Jesus' response to the sheep is not based on what the sheep deserves. His response to the sheep is based on what makes his heart delight. You think about how twisted up this is. And how it gets so tangled up in our world and our culture and in our hearts and in our minds. I hope you realize you could be here this morning and you could think with all your heart that you are serving God. And you may in fact be most opposed to him. You see, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion, motivated by fear and insecurity, says I obey or God will punish me. The gospel says I obey out of gratefulness and joy. Religion says I obey so that God will bless me. The gospel says, well, I'm saved by grace. Therefore, I obey God to get God, not stuff. Religion says when I'm criticized, when people oppose me, Or disagree with me. Or even berate me. I am furious. Because my identity is in my performance. But the gospel says. When I'm criticized. Or berated. Though it may be hard. My identity is in Christ. And cannot be affected by any human opinion. You see, serving brings people home. This is why Jesus said, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of God, let him be a servant. There's only one path to greatness in the kingdom of God and it's servitude. Remember, several months ago, as we were studying through 1 Corinthians, God began to show us some unexpected things. So they were unexpected to me, so I know they were unexpected to you. He began to show us things about our identity. And he used that portion of 1 Corinthians to teach us that the identity of a Christ follower is composed of two things. Do you remember? Two things. Mission and pilgrimage. Those two things. In fact, this is how we defined pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. The deliberate, determined, intentional awareness of what it means to move in mission as a member of the family of God. You see, the only way to experience who you are in Christ, the only way that you can experience that, that you can be who you are in Christ, the only way you can do that is to live on mission in pilgrimage. It is the only way. And so, we would say it today as, well, mission is what we do, pilgrimage is how we do it. You see, we are the body of Christ. Now, so our job, according to the Gospels, is that we are to reflect Christ to the world. I mean, the Bible says this in hundreds of different ways. And how do we do that? Because no singular individual can reflect Christ to the world around you because he's way bigger than any one of us can be. But collectively, as the body of Christ, we can be to the world around us what Christ is, which in order for that to be, in order the only way that can be true is that people that are nothing like us, like us. And yet we, as a culture, have become consumed with telling the world all the things that are wrong with what they do and what they believe. And we have convinced ourselves that we're righteous in doing that. Now, I'm just telling you, it's interesting, but Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's having a meal with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the thieves and the murderers and the people who just got out of prison. That's what he does. He's not having a theological debate with them. He's not taking them through a seminary course. But what are we doing? Don't we look a lot more like the mutterers? We're muttering about How many conversations did you have in the last week about how bad things are, how wrong things are, how frustrated you are, how annoyed you are? And then contrast that. How many conversations did you have last week about how many people there are around you that need you to love them, to serve them? To encourage them, you see, Jesus is con- contrasting these two groups of people, and what you have to ask yourself is, what's the danger here? What, which, because there's great danger. And so let's just be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Are we in more danger of becoming like the sinners and the tax collectors, or are we in more danger of becoming like the Pharisees? Well, let's take a test. Who in here has been thinking about becoming a prostitute? Raise your hand. Anybody here been thinking, I think a felony would really get my life on track? Anybody been thinking that? Hmm? So could we just agree? Very little danger here. Over here on the other hand, here's where the danger lies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Muttering, we've got that down to a science. A science. Now we we've been looking at this four, and then I turned it into four three nine five oh three. And then I put this big map behind me. Do you know how many homes there are in the zip code 39503? 20,000 households. 20,000. How many Tobys are there? In those 20,000 households. And do we even give a rip? Maybe what we should do is. Let's just keep doing what we've been doing. Let's just sit here. Endure an hour or so of me yelling at you. Go home. Watch a football game. Do it all again next week. And let's just hope Toby finds his way here. Why don't we do that? Does that sound like a plan? Oh, that, God's going to love that. Like, that's going to go over great on Judgment Day. We're going to breeze through that test, aren't we? Oh, God, hang on. I can hear it now. God, but I was there. I was in church, and God's thinking, yeah. And where's Toby? Huh? Where is he? You didn't go get him? You didn't carry him back? No, you know what you did? You went inside and ate dinner because you were tired. And then told everybody your opinion about it. Or what if, what if we take the gospel to all 20,000 homes in the zip code? now I'm not a mind reader but I just have an intermittent gift in it and some of you just thought I knew I shouldn't have come to church today but you did down in the Barn, there's been a pallet sitting down there for like two months. And on that pallet are 20,000 gospel tracts, 20,000 DVDs of the Jesus film, 20,000 invitations to church, and 20,000 bags to put it in. And we got 20,000 doorknobs that need a bag what are we missing? Uh. Now we talk a big game, sing a big game. We're about to find out, about to see what's really going on, Michael Memorial? Who we really are? Okay, everybody get your phone out. I will never say that again in church. So you better do it this time because this is your only shot. Get your phone out. Now get your phone out. Thank you for silencing them. And what I want you to do is I want you to set a daily reminder for 5.03 p.m. Like go in your alarm. go set five, If you're over 40, get the young person next to you to show you how to go to the alarm thing and put 5.03 and set an alarm every day for 5.03. And every day at 5.03, you'll be with your family in Walmart. I will not be there, but you will be there. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you'll stop when that alarm goes off at 503, and I want you to pray for all of the Tobys in 39503. Wherever you stop, grab your kids by the hand, circle around every day and pray. You're at ball practice, blow the whistle, tell everybody pause for one second, pray, go back to what you're doing. You're driving down the road, pull off the road for a second and say, God, will you please, will you please? lead us to the Tobys in 39503. Because God loves Toby. He made Toby in his own image. Two weeks from now, Sunday, the 21st, we're going to have what we call Saturate Sunday. Now, what you don't know is that for months we've been working on this because God put all these gifted people in our congregation. We already have 4,000 homes mapped out, numbered, mapped out, organized, categorized, ready to go, ready to go. And so in two weeks, after church, so when we get done in here, we'll go down to the fellowship hall, we'll eat a meal, and then we'll get us a handful of bags, and we'll go to exactly where it tells us on there to go, and we'll hang all these bags on the doorknob. But you're not going to do this by yourself, because that would violate the principle of pilgrimage. That's not how we accomplish the mission. We do it together. So we're going to team up, team up with people that are in your D group, take your D group out together, or team up with people that are in your community group, or you get with, you, you know, this family teams up with another family, and you two are going to take this street together, or however it's going to go, but we're going to do it together because that's the way it's supposed to be done. It won't work the other way. That's not what it is. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll give every Toby in 39503 the opportunity to respond to the gospel. To which some of you are saying, ah. I, can, I can read your mind, I know what you're doing. Your fear and trepidation is just taking over your heart, and you're just you're trying to maneuver out of this every way you can because this is freaking you out. Okay. I got two words for you. Jehovah's Witness. You just gonna let them do it? Huh? You just gonna let them do it? Now, I don't know, but based on all the ones that have come to my house in the last 25 years, I don't even think you can get on the team until you're 70 plus. They're getting it done. So let's do it. Let's do it together. Let's pray every day that God would do it. And listen, there's, we won't do it if we don't pray. We won't do it. And if you, if you are nine months pregnant or on crutches or you can't walk more than 10 feet without having to stop and, and take a breath and drink a Dasani, then... God bless you. We need you. Because every time we go out and do this, we need people here praying. But not healthy people that are scared to do it. You can't hide in the prayer room. People who cannot go can pray, and we need you. But I've already asked God in advance, if you can go, I told him, do not listen to their prayers. And he said, okay, so we're good. And here's why we're going to do it. Because the greatest celebration in heaven is reserved for the lost who are found. The greatest. See, the Bible says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now remember, Jesus loves the people who won't repent because He told them the parable. But His priority... Is Toby and his wife and his kids. And we don't know what they're going to do when they get the gospel. But that's between them and God. We're going to bring it to them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bring it to them. Because unless I'm just totally misreading the whole Bible, which I can assure you I'm not. Jesus left a heavenly community that celebrates sinners saved by grace to create an earthly community that celebrates sinners saved by grace. We're going to go To people's houses. We're going to bring the gospel to people. Who disagree with you. Who don't like you. Don't believe what you believe. Don't vote how you vote don't care about what you care about. We're going to take the gospel to all the people that were around Jesus. Because we don't want to be the people who are muttering about Jesus. And if it sounds. Ambitious. Or maybe even hopefully illogical. Praise God. It's supposed to be.